I want you to take your Bibles with me this morning and again this evening uh, to the book of Revelation. We're going to be looking together at verses from Revelation chapter 5. Now, I don't have time uh, to go into any detail concerning my convictions as to how the book of Revelation is to be interpreted. I understand that there are different interpretations. And so as I proceed this morning and again this afternoon, you'll hear me make statements about the book of Revelation that sound rather dogmatic or I'm making a conclusion of some kind, but understand I don't have the time to show the various Bible verses and so forth to build the arguments that undergird my convictions. Revelation, as you already, I'm sure, you already know, is a very, very difficult book, and that's because of the nature of the literature that, that Revelation is characterized. It's called apocalyptic literature. We generally don't read this kind of material. It, is, it consists, by and large, of visions that were given to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos, and these visions are, consist of symbols, things that John sees that are transpiring in the invisible realms of the heavenly places and concern angels and powers and principalities and, and things that are not immediately accessible to us. So it's a very difficult, very difficult book. I understand that John is telling us about a period of redemptive history between the first and the second comings of Jesus Christ. So we're interested in this because this concerns the time in which we presently live after the first coming of Christ and now awaiting the second coming of Christ. The interpretation of the book of Revelation is determined by the way John has structured his material, the way in which he has laid the literature out for us. It consists of seven literary units, and each one of these units covers this period of history from the first to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Each literary unit concludes at the end of this age with a description of the final judgment and the coming of Jesus Christ. So we're dealing with what is called redemptive history, this period of time in which the risen and enthroned Christ has now sent his spirit so that the salvation of God might go to the ends of the earth. And this is an unprecedented time in redemptive history. The Bible calls it the last days. We are in the final epoch of history prior to the return of Jesus Christ. Now, history is something that people discuss. How are we to understand history? There are those who want to look at history with what they would call the great man view of history. And so we have Christ-like figures, periods of history that are identified by the great leaders of any given time. There are others that say, no, no, we need to be more uh, ideological. We need to be more sociological in our understanding of history so that, that history concerns the, the thinking and, the, and the, 
the, the, the way in which a group of people act together at any one given time. We're seeing this discussion played out for us right now because we are at a very significant pivot point in our history. The Queen of England has recently died. And you hear the commentators, and there are some who are advocating the great woman theory of history. We're just concluded an Elizabethan period of history. And there are others, no, no, no. They say, no, no, this, we need to understand the, the ideological issues of this period of history. This was a period of colonialism, of imperialism, of secularism, of modernism. Uh, there's an Irish uh, sort of witty play on the Anglican Church's prayer liturgy that says something to this effect, Dear Lord, from itities and ologies and antities and isms, good Lord, deliver us. These isms that overtake us. And here's the discussion. What was most important, the queen or the various isms that surrounded her reign, that characterized her time? Well, common to both of these views of history is the fact that history is moving somewhere. We just sang about that. We don't know who holds tomorrow, but we know who holds us, and we know who has planned tomorrow. We are oriented toward the future, and the future is what is called, in theological terms, eschatology. Eschatos means the end, the last things. And we are curious because we are wired toward tomorrow. We're wired toward the future. And without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the future is very, very brief. It's very short. Even if Noah lived to 950 years. Do you want to live to 950 years? <laughs> Genesis 5, and they died, and they died, and they died. Without the resurrection, our future is contained within the boundaries of this present age. It's contained under the auspice of death, and it's constantly subject to the workings of the evil one and to, and to sin. Um, we, need, we need a future that is far greater than the boundary of this present age. The politicians will present to us a vision of utopias, we can finally have a society of, of extensive peace and economic justice and, 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 and racial justice and all of these things. And men have been striving for, for that kind of social utopianism, but it's a, it's, a failed, it's a failed project when we are still victimized by death and by sin and the ravages of the evil one. And so we're confronted with the question, what, what should, for what should we hope? What should be our expectation? Uh, are we our, our own saviors? Are we to look to one another for our salvation? Well, it's enough to make a grown man cry. And that's exactly what we see in Revelation chapter 5 as we read the first four verses this morning. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? 
And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. The title of my message this morning is, Is No One Worthy? We consider first the enthroned creator king. Now, you need to understand that Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 occur in the same place, the same scene, and it's the heavenly throne room of God. At the beginning of chapter 4, we read in verse 1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, Come up here, I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. So we're in a throne room. We're in the heavenly throne room of the Creator King. And there are inhabitants in this throne room, and we read of them in chapter 4, the 24 elders, the four living creatures. And this scene is filled with the sounds and the sights that all point to the glory of the Creator. Look at the 11th verse of chapter 4. Here are the words of the heavenly inhabitants. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. So here we are brought into a revelation of the glory of God in heaven. Now, God does not exist in heaven. God doesn't exist within any created realm, be it the visible or the invisible. God is transcendent above all creation, heaven and earth. God exists in and of himself. His being is unique to himself as God. He is transcendent. He is other than his created beings, angels and men, powers and principalities, authorities, rulers, dominions, all things are submitted beneath this God who is the creator of all things. But his glory is manifest in this heavenly throne room, this heavenly temple, where he is pleased to exercise his rule over his created order. And the glory of God is revealed in this heavenly temple. You remember that God showed Moses this heavenly temple, which was to be a pattern for Moses then to build and replicate this temple in the Old Covenant temple and tabernacle that he constructed in the wilderness. All of this is to tell us that God is the supreme ruler of his creation as our creator. In Revelation 4, we see a depiction of the one who has absolute transcendent authority, supreme sovereignty, glorious in his holiness. Notice in verse 8, the four living creatures do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now that might remind you of what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6, because Isaiah sees the same, same scene 
And there this seraphim are crying, Holy, holy, Lord God Almighty. And you may remember that Isaiah was given that vision on the occasion of the death of Uzziah the king. There was a, 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 a trauma, a crisis in the leadership of the people of God. And God takes Isaiah and says, Don't worry. Although the king has died, there is the king who reigns in heaven. And it's a, say, a day that we need to hear. Many in our world need to hear. Don't worry, the queen has died. But there is a throne on, one, on which one sits who is none other than our creator king. Now in verse 1, and the, these chapters need to be kept together. We're in the same place, the same scene. And the camera zooms in and focuses in on the right hand of him who sits on the throne. Notice verse 1 of chapter 5. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. So here's a close-up of the right hand of God. We just read in Psalm 48 of God's right hand being full of righteousness. Does God have a right hand? Remember, John is, is writing apocalyptic literature. He's, he's telling us of a vision that he has of things that are symbolic. And we read elsewhere in our Bible of the eyes of God. Does God have eyes? The hand of God, the ears of God, the heart of God. There's even descriptions of God who carries his people on the wings of eagles. What's being, what's happening? Well, God is accommodating himself so that we, image of God, might understand something of God because we are created to be like him. But God is not like us. And yet, he accommodates our understanding. So, what is it that we are to understand when we read of something in the right hand of God? Well, this is a symbol. This is, this is significant of the reign and the government and the rule and the power of God. It's, it's, the fancy word is, this is an anthropomorphism. Anthro from the word man and morphism from the word form. It's a, a description of God in the form of a man. And only God is able to give a description of himself in the form of a man, and he's done that in the incarnation of his Son, who the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. So God is revealing himself as our enthroned creator king. Secondly, this morning, we want to consider the king's book, because John now focuses in on this book or this scroll that is in the hand of the one who is seated upon the throne, this hand that symbolizes the authority and the power of the almighty king of the universe. This scroll or book comes to us from the hand of God, which is to say he is the author of the words that are written on this scroll. These words are the revealed issues of God's will, the revelation of God's government. Now, this book, more likely a scroll, because books were not made and bound until uh, much later in history. So this scroll was, was very much, uh, very, was, 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 was made out of a big leaf, or patched together leaves, called papyrus. 
And these big leaves had these veins that would run very conveniently, almost in parallel lines. And the ancients would use the space in between the veins to write the words out on the document that they were writing. And then when they were finished, they would roll up the leaf into this scroll, into a roll, and then if you wanted to read, you didn't open up the book and open its pages, you put the scroll down on the table and you would roll the scroll out and as the scroll was unfolded and opened, you could then read the words in the scroll. For example, Romans, once it was unfolded, was 11 and a half feet long. Philippians was one foot long. This is a special scroll because generally scrolls were only written on one side. But if you had a scroll that was written on two sides, that was a very, very, very important document. It was jam-packed with information and details and specifics and generally associated with the authority of one whose will was to be executed with great specificity. This scroll is sealed up with seven seals. A seal was the droppings of melted wax that would come on the, the fold of the soil of the, of the scroll so that it would close the scroll. And upon that melted wax, the king's ring with the royal insignia would be placed down on top of the melted wax. Then it would harden and it would form a, a protective uh, structure for the scroll. It was, it, it, the seal, therefore, authorized the scroll with authority. It validated its authenticity. It kept it secure and it kept it private so that only someone who was authorized to open it was able to open the scroll. Now it's sealed with seven seals and numbers in the book of Revelation are symbols. As is most of Revelation, they, they communicate something more than mere numbers. How many Holy Spirits are there? One, right? Well, John in chapter 4 says that there are seven Holy Spirits. Are there one or are there seven, or is the number seven being used in a way that is equivalent to the number one, and it is. The idea of seven is the idea of perfection, the idea of completed purpose of God. And so here we see that this is a, a, a record written down for the administration of God's sovereign government in this scroll that would be opened as the seals are broken and incrementally unfolding with sequential progress as each of the scrolls were broken. If you read in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 12, we see that there are books that are associated with God's throne, identified with the authority and the power and the government of God. These are symbols of, of God's government and God's rule. Notice in verse 11 that we read earlier in chapter 4, this is the God who has created all things because of his will. He is the one who is determining and directing all the course of his creation. And we're to see that his will governs the unfolding of providence. All of history is according to the purpose of this sovereign God. And that's what's symbolized in this scroll. But the will of God is not only for the unfolding of 
creation in itself, in natural history, it is also directing the salvation of God's people. It has a redemptive purpose, for chapter 4 is connected to chapter 5. And so God's purpose to bring all history to its eschatological goal, to its end point, to its completion, involves creation being brought into the redemption of God's people, and all of that culminating in the resurrection, issuing into final judgment and the glories of the age to come. Now, there are, as I say, different interpretations of the book of Revelation. I am interpreting this scroll, this book, as a symbol of the exercise of God's divine government, his right hand. He implements, through the unfolding of this scroll, his decrees, his decretive purposes that concern the history of creation and particularly the history of the salvation of his people and that between the first and the second comings of Jesus Christ. How does God save his people during this church age? How does the Holy Spirit work through the gospel to bring God's elect out of death and darkness into union with Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of eternal life. Well, those are the concerns that are written down on this scroll. By way of application, immediately, let me say, first of all, we can see that God's will is all-encompassing. There's nothing that occurs anywhere apart from God's active, purposeful decree. From the movement of armies, to the flight of birds, to the falling of a sparrow, to the number of hairs on our heads, to the makeup of mitochondria, to the tectonic movements of mountains, wherever something exists, the God who is, is present, He's active, he's purposeful, he's ruling, he's superintending every atom of creation to be as he created it and to accomplish the purposes for which he has created it, both in creation and in redemption, and that to the eternal praise of his name that is revealed to us in his Son, Jesus Christ, whose name is above every name that is named in this age and also in the age to come. Another application is that God's decretive will is settled in advance of the history that, that transpires in space and time. Here is the will of God that is written down before the events occur. This is why prophecy is possible. This is why I can say Isaiah saw the same thing that John saw, even though they lived centuries apart from one another. Because the truth of God is the is the unfolding of the will of God, and the will of God, as is God, is absolute and perfect and unchanging. And therefore, this God can speak centuries prior to the transpiring of something that is yet to occur, and it will occur precisely as God has said it will concur, because what God wills occurs. God's will is what happens. He's not making it up as he goes along. He's not trying to discover what's next. He has decreed all things. And that's, and that's part of what is signified in this scroll. But it must be administered. It must be opened, implemented by someone who is worthy. 
Well, that brings me thirdly to ask the question, what is the significance of the opening of this book? We've seen this enthroned creator king and the, the king's book. Well, what is the significance of opening this book? Well, in verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? A closed book asks to be opened. I'm coming to the age in my life now where I realize I have bought more books than I'm ever going to read. (laughs) And I walk into my library and I silently hear many of my books saying, Hey, when are you going to open me? I've been closed here for a long time. A closed book cries out and says, Open me. Read me. That's what a book is for, right? That's what you do with a book. You don't rub it on your head like soap. You, you, you read it. Here's a closed book. It needs to be, it needs to be opened. And in the opening, that, that is a symbolic activity of implementing what the contents of the book dictate. And so as the seals are broken, the book is opened. Redemptive history advances toward the ultimate end and the goal for which God has created and redeemed this fallen cosmos. Now, I mentioned earlier that Revelation is comprised of these seven literary units. Each unit begins in the first coming of Christ and ends at the final coming of Christ and final judgment. And every time you read one of these units, you're being taken on a a journey through this period of history that takes us closer and closer to the final judgment. So each unit cycles back over the same period of history, parallel with the prior unit and the coming units, but they at the same time move progressively forward toward the end. This is called progressive parallelism. So the idea is that you're given different pictures of the same period of the church in church history while she is moving toward the climax of history, the end in the resurrection and the coming of Jesus Christ. And as you get closer to the end of the book of Revelation, the end becomes more and more the focus of what John has to tell us. I told you it's a challenging book. It can be confusing if you don't understand how John has structured his material. You can find yourself reading in the book of Revelation and you look up and think, where am I? How do I understand how all of these symbols and these events go together? They seem so confusing. Well, if you, if you get a handle on how he has structured his material, it's like a map. It helps you to see where you are. And each one of these units takes you on this journey through this period of time. It's like it's like if you start in Livingston and, and, and you take a, a journey down to Zambezi and you, you go all the way east into Mozambique and empty out into the, into the Indian Ocean. And you're told to do a, 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 a photo documentary. And so you, you start in Livingston and you go down and, and you take photographs of all the birds of the Zambezi. And then you come back and you start in Livingston and you, you take a photo documentary of, of all the fish of the Zambezi. And then you come back and you take another photo documentary of, of all the bridges and the, and the river towns of Zambezi. You get the idea. It, it, it's a helpful idea. John isn't doing precisely that because 
the closer you get to the end of the book of Revelation, the more and more you're focused upon the Zambezi emptying into the Indian Ocean. That becomes the goal to which everything is, is driving. And so John is, is describing this, this now, this uh, second seal, or rather the second cycle we've already seen previously in the book of Revelation, Jesus in the midst of the lampstands. In the first chapter, Jesus writing the letters to the seven churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And now we're into this new cycle where John is now given this vision of heaven and the one seated upon the throne. And now we're in this cycle of the seals that break. And as Jesus begins to break the seals, the four horsemen go forth. And we see descriptions of judgment that come to the earth And it's in the context of that judgment that God is working his saving purposes for his people. And we'll see those same themes repeated again as we continue through the book of Revelation and the cycle of the trumpets are blown. And then we come to the the dragon and the the two beasts, the beast representing civil authority and religious authority that threaten to persecute or to seduce the church. And all through it, We keep the end in view because we know the one who is on the throne. We know the one who is ruling and orchestrating all of these events. And we know whose we are. We know where we're going. And we know that we win. Because we are joined to him, as we'll see tonight, who is the one who is the overcomer. And that brings us then, fourthly this morning, to press this question that is asked in verse 2. Who is worthy to open the book? Who is qualified to direct all the events of human history throughout the entire cosmos? Who is qualified to exercise that kind of authority and rule? And the one who asks this question is a strong angel. This must be a very peculiar messenger because he is given... Significant assignments. We'll see him again later in chapter 10 and verse 2 where he tells John not to record a cycle of thunders that he hears and he's told not, not to write that down. It's a very interesting event in the book of Revelation. This strong angel appears in chapter 18, verse 21, announcing the destruction of Babylon. An angel of some significance and strength. Angels do a lot in the book of Revelation. But here's a strong one. Here's a particularly significant one. And he comes in with a loud voice. Mega. He's got a mega mouth. He has a mega voice. And he's proclaiming. That's an interesting word because it's a word that is used elsewhere for preaching. For announcing the truth of the king. Heralding declaring, and he is doing this repeatedly. He just doesn't pop on the scene and say, who's worthy, and then leaves. No. The verb describes an action that is ongoing all the time. Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Here is this search by this strong angel for a person who is worthy. And we need to feel the tension in this scene. We need to feel the drama 
of what John is describing to us. Because this is a persistent call, I submit to you, that is asked in every generation through the course of the history of mankind. It is the perennial question, who is worthy? Great things are at stake. The accomplishment of God's purposes are at stake. If someone does not come forward worthy to open this book and to break its seals, how can the plan of God move forward? How can the purposes of the good creator be accomplished? How can the saving, redemptive grace of this God be accomplished? The destiny of the entire cosmos depends on finding someone who is worthy and who is qualified, who has the strength and the skill to open the book and to break its seals and thereby to move redemptive history on toward the goal of God's intended purposes, which is the glory of his great name in the salvation of the people of God to the praise of Christ. Who is worthy? That's the question. And this morning we look fifthly and finally at the fact of man's unworthiness. The unworthiness of man and the unworthiness of false idols, of false gods. We see that in verse 3 and verse 4. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. The entire cosmos is searched. Who is worthy? Who is worthy? Is there anyone in heaven? Is there anyone on the earth? Is there anyone under the earth? Where can we look? Where can we search? And the constant refrain, who is worthy? Who is worthy? Who is worthy? Well, you know who God put in charge of his creation, don't you? You know who was given the dominion to administer the rule and the government of the king of the universe. You know his name is Adam. He was entrusted with a dominion, with the rule, the administration of the words that God had given to him. And this question, who is worthy, is very much like the question that God asked after Adam had disobeyed and fallen into death through sin and God walking in the cool of the garden in the evening approaches and cries out a question. Adam, where are you? Where are you, Adam? Well, there he is. (laughs) There he is. He's adorned himself in his vain little fig leaf as his attempt to fix the problem of his shame and his guilt 
in order to try to assure himself, I'm sure I'm okay, everything's going to be all right. But God comes on the scene and he runs, he hides behind the bush because the curse of death is already being experienced. He's being separated. He's separated from his God. He's separated from Isha, the woman. He's separated from his creation. He has abdicated his rule and his dominion to the lying, deceiving murderer who has now become the God of this age, even Satan, that deceiver and liar of ages past. Adam doesn't answer the question. And this question, who is worthy, begs to be answered. And the cosmos is searched. Where will we find someone worthy in a fallen creation? In a creation under the curse of death. In a, a world inhabited by rebels against this creator God. Where are we going to find one who is worthy when the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Who is worthy? And the impact hits John. He begins to weep. He begins to weep profusely. He begins to cry because there's no apparent solution to the great tragedy of a fallen world and my friend, if you're here outside of Christ, there's no apparent solution to the tragedy of your life. For who is worthy? Are you worthy? Are you qualified to fix all that sin has done in your life? Are you worthy to stand against the inevitable triumph of death in this age? Are you qualified? Who is worthy? Is there an ideology? Is there an ism that we can look to? Men are deceived by these two beasts later in Revelation. The, the power of the politics, the civil government enforced and endorsed by the power of religious conviction. And they form a world life view. They form a way of evaluating your you're good and you're bad, you're true and you're false, and, and they give the world an authorized ism by which to live their lives. Marxism is on the ascendancy in my country right now. And they think and they hope maybe by a political, religionized way of thinking, maybe we can come up with some way to solve the, the problem, to answer the question, who is worthy? Does religionized politics qualify to open up this scroll? Well, what about a great man? What about the saviors? That's what the Caesars called themselves in the day that John was writing. Hosoter, it's the word savior. If you were part of the Roman Empire, you were compelled to make this, con this confession. Caesar is Lord. And Christians wouldn't do that because they confessed Jesus is Lord. Why would... Caesar called himself a lord because he was a savior. He was said to be a savior. Is that the kind of salvation that we need? What about the great military conquerors? Maybe that's what we need. Maybe we need a new Alexander the Great. Maybe we need a new Napoleon. No, we need a new philosopher. 
We need a new Immanuel Kant. We need a new Hegel. We, 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 need a new, we need a new Nietzsche, a new Freud. Maybe we need a new politician. Maybe we need a new constitution. Maybe the framers of the United States Constitution can answer the question who was worthy. Maybe, maybe Madison and, and Jefferson can be worthy. Or maybe our business moguls, maybe those are the great men who can give us a solution. Maybe, maybe it's the Rockefellers and the Bill Gates and the Jeff Bezos. Or our religious leaders, the Pope, Gandhi, Muhammad. Maybe, no, 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 we need a new government. Maybe it's not the monarchy. Maybe now we're going to go to a different form of government in the great nation of Britain. No, it's an educational system. What we need is a new way to educate the young. That's where our hope lies. Maybe it's our technology. Maybe it's our technology. That's what will solve our problems. No, we need a new cure. Once we find the cure for cancer, that's the solution. Who is worthy? What is worthy? Is there anyone anywhere who's going to come forward and answer the question of this strong angel? Well, the irony is that you already know who's worthy because we read it earlier together. Look at chapter 4 and verse 11. What does it say? Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and are created. There it is. God is worthy. God is worthy. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Who other than God is qualified to carry out the plans and the purposes of God? Who other than God can be our Savior? Man cannot be our Savior because man needs to be saved. But wait! In this created order, God has entrusted to his image, even as we read in Genesis chapter uh, 9 this morning, that man is made in the image of God. It is man who is to administer God's rule and government in his creation. It is Adam, the image of God, the created son of God, who is being summoned by this question, Adam, where are you? Is there an Adamic man worthy to assume the responsibility that God gave to man at the very beginning. We need a, a divine savior to accomplish a human salvation who is worthy. And there I bring us to the futility of idolatry. The futility of idolatry the absolute vanity and utter failure of man's attempts to construct something worthy by the making of his own hands out of the imagination of his own mind. No one, no person in heaven or earth or under the earth is found 
to be worthy. Now, last Lord's Day, you read those words in your consecutive reading of the Old Testament. Heaven, earth, and under the earth. That's the vocabulary of the second commandment. In Genesis, or rather Exodus chapter 20, the second commandment reads, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or the earth beneath or the water under the earth. See, that's the realms from which men make their gods, from which men form their idols. And those realms encompass the created order of God. And there is none worthy in heaven above, on the earth, or under the earth. Astral gods, deified men, monsters, invisible powers, principalities, invisible creatures, anything or anyone to which man gives his allegiance and his adoration and says, here we found the worthy one. And the great angel says, nope. No, you're not going to make a worthy one out of your own imagination. You're not going to construct a worthy one by the configuration of the stars. I told one of my friends not long ago, I finally have seen, I've finally seen the Southern Cross. <laughs> the configuration of the Southern Hemisphere. We don't see that in the Northern Hemisphere. But I'm not going to bow down and pray to it. I'm not going to pray to the sun. I'm not going to make gods out of the material stuff of this created world. Why? Because there is none worthy in heaven above the earth or beneath the earth. And here is the tension. This is what I want to bring to you this morning. This is the tension. This is the drama. This is the existential crisis of our lives. Who is worthy? We need an Adamic man who is able to have divine qualifications of worthiness in order to save us from the tragedy of the fall and from the condemnation and guilt brought upon ourselves by our own sin. Who is worthy? Is there none who is worthy? And when you let that question bear down on you, you find there's a time to weep. There's a time to weep. That's exactly what we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 4. There's a time to weep. And John is experiencing such a time. Have you experienced this time? A time to cry. Have you faced with real honesty your inability to answer this question. Who is worthy? Who is worthy? Can you feel the tragedy of the drama of this moment as heaven and earth and the seas are scoured to find is there someone who is worthy who can come forward to do something? Now John doesn't do what Isaiah does in Isaiah 6. You remember when the Holy One is being praised, holy, holy, holy. And he asks the question, who will go for us? And John says, oh, here, here am I. Send me. Isaiah, rather. Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. But John doesn't do that. John weeps. He doesn't turn around and say, hey, let me open up the book. 
I'm sincere enough, aren't I? I mean well. Let me open up the book. I'll do the best I can. I'm a good person. No. No, John weeps. Because even as Christians, we know that all, when we do all the things that we've commanded, we say we are what? Unworthy servants, having done only what we have been told to do. This may seem like an odd place to end a sermon, doesn't it? Pressing the question upon you, are you worthy? Who is worthy? Doesn't thought that there's no one found to be worthy bring a tear to your eyes? Isn't there a time to weep? Isn't there a time? Have you come to the time in your own life where you've experienced the futility of your supposed goodness, the futility and emptiness of all of the proposed solutions that have been offered to you? when you realize that there's no one who's stepping forward that can save me from myself, from my sin, from the inevitability of death. That's a time to cry. What happens if no one is worthy? Does that mean Satan wins? Does that mean the church fails? Does that mean that we are as those described in Ephesians verse 2 and chapter 2 verse 12 without hope, without God in the world. Paul tells us of the resurrection. My friends, if Christ is not risen, then we Christians of all people are most to be pitied. We deserve pity. Cry for us, Christians. Because if Christ is not risen, if we do not find the answer to this question, all we can do is weep. All we can do is cry. And my unbelieving friend, if you're apart from Jesus Christ, that's the summary of your life. You walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this veil of tears. It's described in Psalm 23, 4. And it's a life, yes, there's good things to enjoy. And yes, God's sunshine and God's rain and the family and, and all of the created goodness is still there. But it is a time of tears and crying. And if you die in your sins, you face an eternity of weeping. Jesus describes hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Unless this question is answered, we've got nothing to do but cry. And that's John's right response. He weeps profusely. And my dear Christian brethren, there's even a place for us to weep as well. When Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, 19, and he speaks of those who are enemies of the cross, he says, I write even weeping. Do you weep for your unconverted family? Do you weep for your unconverted friends? Do you weep for the unsaved in your life? who are putting their hopes and aspirations in that which is vain and futile and unworthy. I think those are some of the tears that the Father will wipe from our cheeks, as we're told of later in the book of Revelation. I want you to feel the pressure of this question. 
I fear that sometimes we're too quick to get over the uncomfortable, unsettling realities of our condition as fallen in sin into death, deceived by the doctrines of demons, being lied to, and under the curse of death, the outer man decaying, and all of us careening toward the grave and a resurrection of judgment. I want you to think about this question. Who is worthy? And then, God willing, when we come together in our next hour of worship today, we'll discover with great joy that this question is answered, that there is one who is worthy. And we read of him in verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Thank God there is one worthy, the lion of Judah, the glorious overcomer, the Lamb of God, even our risen and enthroned Savior Jesus Christ. Come again today and let's open up this passage together and answer this question, who is worthy? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is worthy. Do you know him? Does he know you? Is he your worthy one in whom is all of your trust and hope? For whoever will call upon the name of this Lord will not be disappointed. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that our consideration of these verses from this very challenging book will be owned of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and that this repeated question by this strong angel would, would resonate in our own minds and demand us that we give an answer. And may it be by your Spirit that we are compelled to answer the question that there is one worthy even Christ Jesus. And let us, if need be, experience the tears of the tragedy of not finding one worthy so that that great need may propel us and compel us to turn to Christ, the only worthy Savior of sinners, and find in him our all in all. We ask these blessings in the glorious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.